Let's continue to be satisfied in Him together by looking into the Scriptures. John 18. John 18 is where we'll be focusing today as we continue our study in the Gospel of John. Seeing and savoring the Son of God. John 18, the study is particularly going to focus on verses 12 to 27. John 18, verses 12 to 27. I need to admit that I'm conflicted about how to proceed with a a story that's so uh, familiar. Uh, What we have here is one of the great epics of failure in all the Bible. I mean... It is, it is a failure of, of glorious proportion. And it, it takes place, though, in a fascinating arrangement. This is a story, indeed, about epic failure, but it's... It's actually intended to fortify our faith. A story of epic failure to fortify our faith. I need to warn you, it'll strike right at the heart of the American can-do attitude. The idea that when we fail, we Try, try again, and the stories we tell our children, I think I can, I think I can. Like It's not an ellipsis, it's a period. One of the strongest figures in all the Bible tries to make a contribution to the saving work and just fails miserably. And that's supposed to motivate you somehow. And to help you see how it will motivate you, how failure will fortify you, I'm actually not going to read the entire passage ahead of time. I want to let it unfold like the narrative that it actually is. So if this is the epic story of Peter's failure intended to fortify our faith, I can at least tell you this ahead of time. It does unfold in four alternating acts. You're going to see a first act with Jesus, and then another act with Peter. Another act with Jesus, and another act with Peter. You really need to grasp that to begin so you can hit the main point. Don't think, 
oh, there's a story about Peter and there's a story about Jesus, and John's just kind of confused because he's just so excited about the various things that are going on. He's intentionally telling us Act 1 about Jesus, Act 2 about Peter, Act 3 about Jesus, Act 4 about Peter to make a point. So let us begin with the first act. I would call this the stand of Jesus. The stand of Jesus. And um, I'll begin in verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. Now, you need to remember what happened last week to appreciate what's happening here. Jesus had made it crystal clear when they came with lanterns and torches and weapons that he would stand out, he would step up and sacrifice himself. He wasn't arrested in intent, he actually arrested himself. So here I am, I'm the guy you're looking for, I am, I am, I am he. You're not looking for them, you're looking for me. And so the story continues here with Jesus actually being carried off to the first of three Jewish trials, and then he will also endure three uh, public or Roman trials as well. This first one is, is rather uh, unofficial, if you will, uh, because the, there's some confusion, like right to start off with, where it actually says that they arrest Jesus and they bound him and they lead him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. Now, historical note, who's the high priest that year? It says it. You can answer. Caiaphas. But as the story continues, it's going to say that the high priest is the one questioning Jesus, leading you to think that it's Annas. Fascinating detail. Annas was the one who was originally installed as the high priest probably 20 years before this. And yet, for the Jews, the position of the high priest was one that was for life. And yet, the Roman government, they had a way of actually trying to maintain peace by letting their underlings basically do their own political good. They retained the power to tax, and they retained the power to execute. But they basically told everybody underneath them, look, you can keep running things the way that you want. So, the system of government at that time kind of resembled a mix between the legislature and the judicial branch of the American government. It was called the Sanhedrin. These guys made laws and they would execute on the basis of those laws, but here's the deal about the uh, Jewish government at the time. They're kind of like mall cops. No offense if that's your job, but you don't have a firearm. You can't kill anyone. I mean, the best you can do is like zip tie somebody if they let you. Like Rome did not give them the power of the sword. Rome retained that for themselves. And so if they're going to give anything to Rome to like really get something done, like they have to go through their own like courts, if you will, 
and make a pretty convincing case. And yet, even though the official leader is Caiaphas, because Rome said that Caiaphas was the guy, the Jews knew that the real godfather of the Sanhedrin was Annas. He was the guy that was originally installed. In fact, there had been five different high priests in the last few years because Rome didn't want any one of those guys to retain too much political power. But as you and I all know very well, there are positions and there's power. And there's a huge difference between the two. Annas has the power. And Jesus is bound before, and I want you to to please see this. It's going to be very important for the contrast to come. Jesus is bound before the most powerful Jewish man on the planet. As a sacrifice. And so... Jesus has made his stand. How did he end up in this position? He puts himself out there and says, I'm the one you're looking for. I am the one who's supposed to die. Jesus stands. Here is Jesus standing before the most powerful person in Israel. And now we switch back to the second scene. We get to see Peter again. This second scene, the second act, if you will, I would call for us uh, the stumble of Peter. There's the stand of Jesus, and then there's the stumble of Peter. Peter stumbles here. After already having kind of stumbled on his own, I mean, we just saw Peter right before verses 12 through 14, and do you remember what it is? It's Jesus standing up and saying, like, I'm the one you're looking for. And I can imagine this this picture in my mind. I don't know why there's not any paintings of this. Like if you were to go to the National Art Gallery, there's all these pictures of Jesus like praying on the ground. There's all these pictures of Jesus dying on the cross. Where is the picture of Jesus like standing in power pose over the Roman horde? I mean, 600 people approximately stumbling before him because he pronounces, I am. And it's like right before this picture gets taken, here's Peter. Jesus is standing mightily. It's going to be an awesome shop. And Peter photobombs <laughs> with a sword. He's already made it clear. I'm going to die. You have nothing to do with this. This is my sacrifice alone. Peter jumps in the picture. And Peter gets rebuked by Jesus for, having make, for trying to make a contribution that he's not supposed to make. He's saying, no, you don't do this. And now Peter's embarrassed. And now he's kind of targeted, like he was the guy that, that waylaid, like the, the high priest's servant. So he gets another shot. Peter gets another shot to redeem himself. You need to know that he's already blown it one time before this, but that's not today's message. That was last week's. So you can listen to that. But today, you're thinking, all right, fresh start for Peter. Sure, he, he stumbled a little bit already, but now maybe he can get his footing. And so we see what happens with him in verse 15. It says, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple since that disciple was known to the high priest he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest but Peter stood outside at the door 
So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. Now pause for a moment. Uh, A couple features of this scene you need to grasp. One, Peter is indeed following Jesus here. Aren't Aren't you proud of him there? It says in the other Gospels that all of them run away, so he runs away. He somehow like, finds some courage somewhere, and he wants to go check on Jesus. And so uh, we need to actually, I guess, applaud the fact that you know, Jesus, I mean, excuse me, Peter is trying to be there in some way to say, like, um, hey, I've got your back. I don't know if like, he's going to try to make eye contact with Jesus and give him one of these, but like, he, he wants to be there. So uh, before we just make Peter out to be some kind of a bumbling idiot, like he is actually trying as the de facto leader of the twelve in Jesus' absence to show solidarity by going to be there with him. And he meets his first obstacle in this, and that is actually getting into Annas' house. <laughs> this trial is taking place in Annas' house, and so you can't just go trouncing up in somebody's yard. So there's another disciple there. And I'm not wasting our time trying to figure out what disciple it is. The Bible doesn't say. But there is a guy who's obviously got some connections to the royal family. And this was an aristocracy. And so he goes in. He goes into the courtyard. He talks to whoever he needs to talk to. That They come back to the servant girl who's like watching the door. She just basically has to keep the door locked so that the right people come in. And like they said, okay, this guy, he's got the green light. And I think this is a fascinating scenario because imagine what's going down in this particular moment. Servant girl standing here, staring at Peter, who's standing awkwardly waiting for the business on the inside to get taken in. What do you think this servant girl gets to do in that intervening time? To study his face. Who is this guy? She she gets to sit there and like look at him and and figure it out. And when the word finally comes that that Peter can actually go in in this particular moment, I want you to, to, to notice what happens. Verse 17, the servant girl, by the way, John repeats that for the second time, the servant girl at the door said to Peter, you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Strike one. He can't even support Jesus in front of the slave girl. Now, I could argue that this is not that big a deal. Maybe he's just being shrewd. Maybe he just knows that, all right, he's got to tell one lie to get in. I'm not saying that's the right thing to do. I'm just trying to be sympathetic. But he, he does deny Jesus here. And I, I want you to, to grasp the significance of this because in a collectivist culture, like your association like with a rabbi, like that was something that you were supposed to wear proudly. Like to deny association with the one who was your supposed master, like that's... That's insulting. It's like when a mom shows up to a kid's like high school football game and like the kid acts like he doesn't know who his mom is. Like she's the one cheering loudly in the stands and like 
who's that lady? I'm like, I don't know. That's dishonorable. I say that to you, high schoolers. That's dishonorable. <laughs> Own your parents. They have owned you. Peter has the opportunity to own his Lord here, to, to associate. I mean, obviously, whoever this other disciple is has some kind of connections, and he's not being like ostracized for it. Like Peter could still safely get in. He could say, yes, I'm with him, but he doesn't. And before we leave this one, please note one of the fascinating features found through the pen of the Apostle John in verse 18. This, this could seem, what's here in verse 18, I'll read it in a second, but what's here in verse 18 could seem totally extraneous. Like if you were the editor of the story, you're like, mm, unnecessary details, strike it. But we know there are no unnecessary details. Notice the vivid note that John adds to this account of Peter's failure. Now, the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold. And they were standing and warming themselves Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. Do you see it? You can smell it. Here stand the enemies of Jesus, basking in the afterglow of their midnight victory. Fires, by the way, at night were a rarity. We have such an abundance of resources in the United States that like lighting a fire in the middle of the night is just like a cool novelty that nobody thinks anything of. They did not burn fires at night for no reason. It had to be an emergency. Nobody did anything at night. There's no public lighting. This is a big deal. So here they are in the coldness of the night. They've prepared a fire because of this important event that's going on. And by the way, these are the enemies. It's the servants and the officers. It's the same officials, the, the temple security. That they were the ones who were gathered around this fire. They just went out on the hunt. They came back. Here they are standing and warming themselves by the fire. And the last thing you see of this particular act is Peter in standing with them, warming himself by the fire, making himself comfortable. Peter, the guy who said, I will stand with you. I will die with you. He's making his stand all right. Getting his backside warm. And the story switches. We're all ready to act three. Like you're thinking, okay, that's a cool detail. What's next? And what's next is Jesus. It's like a, a scene switch in a, in a movie. So we, we move from Jesus' stand to Peter's stumble uh, to what here I, I would call Jesus' steadfastness. It's related to a stand, but I want you to, to see the more permanent nature of what Jesus is doing as he comes under the scrutiny of this most powerful man in all of the Jewish world. Verse 19 the high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? 
Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Now, get it. (laughs) Peter's stand. Peter has his first opportunity to stand before a slave girl. Jesus' stand is taking place in front of, of Annas. Old, powerful, politically connected Annas. And so in particular, this Annas asks him about his disciples and his doctrine. It's an interesting line of questioning, it would seem. But I want you to understand exactly what's going on here. They are treating Jesus as if he is some type of a terrorist. Isn't that what we would do with a suspected terrorist? All right, what are your plans and who are your associates? And it's, it's treating him like a hostile. And what he's also doing is illegal, not because of the Fifth Amendment. There was no Fifth Amendment for Jewish people in the first century. You don't have to, by the way. I'm, not everybody knows the Fifth Amendment. <laughs> Hopefully not many of you have been read your Miranda rights. But you know, like on TV at least, they say you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you. know, like... Um, what they're trying to say is don't admit to any, you don't have to indict yourself. That's actually been a nice staple of jurisprudence for a few thousand years. It's not just an American thing. I know we would like to claim it for ourselves, but other countries also don't demand people to speak on their own behalf because the legal system's tricky. You know what it's like to be tricked into something? And if you ever want a timeshare, you definitely know what that's like. <laughs> it seemed like such a good idea. Sometimes it seems like such a good idea just to speak. Well, let me just go ahead and clear myself. Let me just go ahead and talk. And everything that you say can be used against you. So actually, the, the Mishnah reported that at this particular time, it was illegal for anyone to have to speak on behalf of themselves. A typical Jewish trial would happen this way. Uh, the person who was being arrested would be presented, and then witnesses would first come and speak on behalf of the, of the one being prosecuted. And then the prosecution could present witnesses otherwise. But you never had to speak on your own behalf. Other people always spoke for you. It gets back to that thing in Deuteronomy about like not, there not being a charge unless there's two or three witnesses. So Annas knows the law, and yet what he's trying to do here is implicate Jesus. And I'm giving you this background because I want you to, to help, like, gra- I want to help you grasp what Jesus is doing. Because, I mean, Jesus is standing firm through this response. He's actually not falling into this trap. And the way that he answers is actually to point out to Annas, as respectfully as he can, through indirect question, like, do you have witnesses? If you think that my disciples are staging a coup, or if you think that my doctrine is in some way blasphemous, or I'm staging a rebellion, I mean, notice what he says again. Just look at your own copy of God's Word. He said, I've spoken openly to the world. I've always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. 
I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. Do you see how he's saying, like, we're your witnesses? What have I done? It's brilliant. It's a brilliant stand. But notice how even though he answers respectfully, even though he tries to follow due process of the law, he also suffers for it. Verse 22. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? I don't know if it's a slap to the face. I don't know if it's a punch in the face. But you look it up in a lexicon and basically it pertains to the face and getting hit. But whatever it is, the irony is deafening. Because whereas Peter is the one inflicting pain, having done wrong, Jesus is the one receiving pain, having done right. He stands steadfastly. And what this is, friends, this is, I hope that you would appreciate this as a student of Jesus and wanting to know his life. Uh, this first blow is the shot heard around the world. This is the first time that Jesus will receive physical pain at the hands of another on account of the sacrificial act that would take place over the next 24 hours. So the suffering begins with Jesus standing against the religious hypocrites for truth and in the place of his people. It's a beautiful picture. Yet, even in his righteousness, um, he's progressing all the more closely to his sacrificial death. Notice what happens next. Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? He basically says, All right, what's the case? Annas, the powerful godfather figure in this story, gives up. And it says, He sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, John, just so you're aware, John doesn't actually record the trial in front of Caiaphas, the official high priest, or the other trial. You'll find those in Matthew and Mark and Luke. But that's not John's point. John's not trying to give you an exhaustive disclosure of everything that's taken place. He particularly here is trying to tell a story about a firmly resolved Jesus to sacrifice for his people and a fumbling, failing, well-meaning apostle who thought he was going to make a contribution. John doesn't even say, like back in verse 13 and uh, 12 and 11... John doesn't even mention the fact that Malchus's ear is healed. He's not telling that story. He's telling a story about Jesus making a stand and Peter trying to make his own stand. And so we see the three acts. Follow me. There's Jesus' stand, and then there's Peter's stumble. And then there's Jesus' steadfastness. And then in this last scene, we'll see what I will call Peter's strikeout. Peter's strikeout. Look at verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself, so they said to him, you also are not one of his disciples, are you? Now Paul, I don't even want to finish the verse. We have to note something. That, do you see here in verse 25 this fascinating way that John resumes the story of Peter? He gets back, like what we last read just a few verses ago was what? Peter is standing, warming himself by a fire. John wants you to get, 
he really wants you to see that Peter is still, while Jesus is getting beat up for righteousness, Jesus, Peter is still standing, warming himself by a fire. Now, here's a guy who's making himself comfortable in the midst of this particular problem. And, and so at this point where Peter's standing with these guys, they said to him, you're not also one of them. He denied it and said, I am not. Strike two. Strike two. Wasting no ink, John continues Peter's sad saga. Look at verse 26. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, did I not see you with the garden with him? Now, this is the most damning witness of all. Not only did this guy who's going to ask Peter if he's associated with Jesus, not only did he see him with his own eyes, but he saw in particular him try to take off a dude's head and cut off his ear, but it wasn't just any dude, it was like his cousin or something. I mean, I haven't seen that many physical like, attacks on somebody, like I've never seen an ear sliced off in person. I have a feeling that would be pretty vivid for me. I think it would be more vivid if it was somebody that I ate family dinner with on Sundays. So if there was ever a guy like who had like crystal clarity on what was going on in this particular... If there was ever a time where Peter's going to have to be like, okay, you got me. I'm with him. You'd think this would be it. And man, the ball goes right down the middle. Strike three. He doesn't even take the swing. He denied it, and listen to verse 27, at once a rooster crowed. To quote Yogi Berra, the fat lady sang. It's over. It's over. An interesting detail, this, uh, this crowing of the rooster in particular, because is it not what Jesus had forecasted five chapters earlier? You remember in chapter 13, he's saying, I'm going to lay down my life for you, just like a servant does the disgusting work of washing someone's feet. It's an enacted parable. He says, I'm going to like, lay down my life. I'm going to do the disgusting act of death on your behalf. I'm going to clean you up. And he says, look, I'm going to do this, and I'm going to die, and I'm going to depart, and in my absence, you need to love one another. And here's Peter, I mean, excuse me, Jesus trying to teach a lesson to his disciples, like, I'm the one that's going to do the dying, I'm going to do the departing, in the meantime, this is what I want you guys doing, make sure you love one another, and it's like the story like, just picks up on Peter who can't get away from the dying part. And while Jesus is in the middle of a lesson on what they should be doing in his absence, it says in verse 36, he interrupts Jesus and says, Lord, where are you going? You remember that? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. This death departure act that I'm about to pull off on your behalf, you cannot contribute to. There's nothing you will do right now, but you will eventually, 
You will eventually experience this, Peter. And notice what Peter says to him. Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. I've got something to contribute. I can help. That almost sounds like a, a toddler. I do it. I do it. Jesus is making it crystal clear, no, I do it. And Peter, in true infantile fashion, says, no, I do it. I will die for you. Peter said, Jesus said, no, uh, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. He's saying like, <laughs> but whatever the, goodness sake, there's so much research on when the rooster crows. Like whatever time a rooster crows, mine is at like random times every day. I have no idea why. But clearly, there was some kind of consensus on when the rooster would crow. The point is that before the night is up and you hear the official crow of the rooster, not only will you not die for me, you won't even be able to stand for me. Three times. John doesn't mention the regret of Peter here. He just shows him striking out. And the story, I think, is pretty clear. Do you see it? Do you see what John's doing here? Jesus stands, Peter stumbles. Jesus is steadfast, Peter strikes out. It's a contrast. A good old-fashioned story of contrast. In the saving act of sacrifice, in that one thing that needed to be done to accomplish the salvation of all mankind, Jesus will have no help. Peter talks it, Jesus walks it. Peter steps out, I mean, Jesus steps out in front of the crowd, Peter slinks back. Jesus stands up to an antagonistic ruler, Peter stumbles over an inquisitive slave. Jesus witnesses of himself for truth, Peter warms up himself in deceit. One put it this way, what we have here is a contrast between Christ's faithfulness and Peter's faithlessness. Christ's courage and Peter's cowardice. Christ's sacrificial love and Peter's self-preserving lies. Like, woohoo! That's encouraging, Justin. Thank you for that today. It is actually way more encouraging than I think you would ever realize. And... <laughs> I never do this, but I'm going to have to. Otherwise, I would be stealing somebody else's stuff, and that's plagiarism. But I need to tell you a story that I actually heard from somebody else. And again, you're going to think that I'm breaking the mood. I promise I'm not trying, but the guy is actually a comedian. He's clean, though. Don't worry. And I need you to get the visual of this, because I actually... This story is, is helpful, at least for me. The guy's name is Ryan Hamilton. He's probably like six foot three. He's ultra white and pasty, and he's got bright red hair. And he's got this huge smile that's almost creepy. 
And he's just gangly and skinny of a guy. And in fact, the, the title of his, his series or his little show, I've never seen him do another one, but it's called Happy Face. Like, he's, just, he's always smiling. And he, he tells this part in his, his story where he's, he says, look, and I'm just going to quote him here. And again, I'm not a comedian, but his, this, this is a clear picture. He says, I think there's a place for me in the Olympics. I know this is a bold statement, but just hear me out. All these elite athletes are competing at such elite levels and competing against uh, other such elite athletes and winning by the narrowest of margins. It's very difficult to have perspective. What we need is a control group. You understand? Like, let's insert an average human into each one of these events. Can you imagine? Michael Phelps hoarding medals one after another has yet again won this race, but this race is not over because here comes Tim from Human Resources. <laughs> Did you notice that Tim decided to wear board shorts for this event? That's got to create some drag. Maybe those flippers the officials seem to be overlooking will make up the difference. <laughs> you love that? A control group. A normal person. Peter's the control group. When reading of Jesus, sometimes like we need to see a Tim from Human Resources. Like we need to see the normal guy trying to do what Jesus was doing and recognize that he has no contribution to make. We need to be stunned at the elite performance of our Savior, lest we be tempted to think that we have some kind of contribution to make. We sing of it often. I heard the Savior say, My strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thy all in all. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Lord, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone can change the leper's spots and melt the heart of stone. And when before the throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save. My lips shall still repeat, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. If. He paid it all. If He paid it all, there's two things we we got to do today. First, if Jesus paid it all, we need to get out of the way. We just we got to get out of the way. I beware. Dearly beloved, of the expectation that you're somehow going to help out. It's so American, isn't it? You go out to lunch after somebody offers to buy it, and what do we say? Let me help. Let me help. Let me at least get the tip. <laughs> I even heard it this way. Somebody told me, um, I pay, you pray. Why, does anybody even, why would anybody even say that? Because they, 
they're, they're trying to say, you can contribute in some way. It's just American. Like, let me chip in. Like, like Peter's not an American. Sorry to disappoint you. But like, doesn't he seem so? He would fit in good around here. Hey, let me help out. Jesus makes it clear. I'm the one that washes your feet. I'm laying my life down. He's like, no, 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 I can help out. I'm going to die too. And what do we see? That the best of men are men at best. Friends, the sacrificial saving act of Jesus is something that he does alone. Thou must save and thou alone. You don't contribute. You've got no skin in this game. It's his. He's the one that died. He's the one that rose again. One put it this way, the tragic story of Peter's failure is a warning to all who would claim self-confidently that they would follow Jesus wherever he leads them. Boasting of our abilities is an invitation to failure, and that is exactly what Peter discovered. Friends, you have nothing to contribute. Jesus paid it all. Just, just get out of the way. Get out of the way. But I want to be clear about this because I think it would be easy for you to hear me say, if Jesus paid it all, get out of the way, as in, like, oh, I don't exercise any initiative on anything. Okay, so Jesus, I mean, uh, Justin is saying, like, don't do squat. What I'm saying is that you get out of the way of your justification, your righteousness with God, the salvation that only He can provide. The staff and I are reading this wonderful little book. And when I say little, I'm not exaggerating. It's like 50 pages. Called, How God Changes Us. We had five on the book wall back there. I mentioned it a few weeks ago. They all disappeared. But thankfully, Amazon's still open. (laughs) The fifth chapter of the book is the most valuable chapter of the book for me, and he tries to summarize the Christian growth endeavor with three statements. Justification, here's his first one, justification is outside in, never inside out. Second, Sanctification is inside out, never outside in. Third, sanctification happens as we look back to what Jesus accomplished in justification. If those terms are really big for some of you today, you're like, man, what's he talking about? By justification, I just simply mean being right with God. Being declared right with God, like things being good between you and God for all eternity, that's outside in. Somebody outside you, there was this like alien righteousness accomplished and imputed by Christ. It got put into you by faith alone. You just, you just receive it. Like you, if you didn't do it, you didn't accomplish it. Like it came from the outside in. Now, sanctification would say, what's that? That's Christian growth. That's like when you're trying to become more and more like Jesus. That's inside out. I mean, excuse me, that is, yeah, that is inside out. It's never outside in. It's not like, all right, if I clean myself up enough, it's somehow going to change my heart. Like, you need your heart to change. But what is it that changes your heart? What is it that changes your affections? What is it that gives you more passion to follow the Savior in the toughest of environments? It's looking back to what He already accomplished in justification, realizing that you're already right with God. 
I know the easy way to make everybody feel guilty with this particular message is to say, when was the last time you took a stand for Jesus in your workplace? As if that was the point of the text. That's not the point of the text. But if you want to know how to take more of a stand in your workplace, it isn't by feeling guilty about it. It's by feeling grateful for what Jesus has already done. So if Jesus has paid it all, just get out of the way. Like Stop thinking that you've got something to pay here. He's already paid it all. And now you get to just show Him how thankful you are in the way that you live. So if Jesus has paid it all, get out of the way. If Jesus has paid it all, secondly, get back in the game. Get back in the game. I would like to beware you, uh, or make you aware, or warn you, excuse me, of the disappointment of not helping out. Um, Peter here fails and fails miserably. Uh, But Jesus has not failed Peter. I don't want to give it away, but I kind of do want to give it away because I don't think you'll remember it. But there's one cool detail in this particular story that will show up a few chapters later. And that's the smell of charcoal. Remember it said that Peter was standing and warming himself by a charcoal fire? Just a few chapters later, after Jesus will die and rise again, and the disciples are all scattered about on their own fishing expedition, uh, expedition Jesus starts a charcoal fire and restores Peter by asking him three times, do you love me? If so, feed my sheep. You're still in the game. I want you to contribute to the ministry here. And there's something about a smell that arrests the memory. This lady walked by me the other day and she was wearing the perfume that my stepmom wore every day. And I just thought, it was just a a whiff. And it just brought back like everything. Smell of the charcoal. (laughs) Peter wouldn't always associate it with defeat. He would associate it with restoration. Friends, yeah, you fail Jesus. I fail Jesus. You deny Jesus. I deny Jesus. Sometimes it's with our words. Sometimes it's with our actions. And yet, He has paid it all. So get in the game. There's nothing more than Satan would love to do to say, you don't know what I've done. Like I, 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 I'm just checking out. I'm going to withdraw to the sidelines. I'm riding the pine from this point forward because I can't play this game. Jesus has already played the game. Jesus has won the game. And you just get to go and be a part of the winning team. I'm a terrible golfer. This, I'll end with this. Terrible. Triple digits terrible. And yet I've won a golfing state championship. How in the world did that happen? I didn't have an unusually lucky day. I still shot in the triple digits at the state championship. And I still won a golfing championship. And you're thinking like, was the state of North Carolina that terrible in golf? No. In a golfing state championship, six people play, four scores are taken, you're still on the team no matter what you shoot. 
I knew that I was going to do miserably. The coach let me play because I was a senior and he liked me. (laughs) Friends, you're on the team. Jesus already shot the perfect score and you get to get out there and play. It's His score that counts, not yours. Play the game. Serve. Contribute. Failure is not final. He paid it all. So He stands. We stumble. He's steadfast. We strike out. Jesus paid it all. I think it'd be great for us to close out by testifying to one another today of the full and final payment of Jesus. Let me pray, and then let's sing that old hymn together. But don't just sing it for yourself. Sing it to one another. Let's remind ourselves that He paid it all. Let's pray. Father, as we saw in Psalm 62 earlier today, You have done this alone. Oh, that gives us great hope. So for uh, those of us who have given up on trying to contribute on our own and have found victory and joy and salvation in Jesus and in Him alone, or grant grace. For those who are miserably fighting for their own self-contribution to the plan of salvation, whether it be through their religious efforts or their morality or their philanthropy, or their good intentions, I pray that you would convince them that there is nothing they have to contribute and that they would come and cling to Jesus and Him alone. Or give us great joy as we look to our Savior who has stood successfully and saved us. And it's in His name we pray. Amen.